Welcome to the No Nonsense Agile Podcast. I'm Shane Gibson. And I'm Murray Robinson. And I'm Daniel Mezik. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for joining us. So I've been reading your stuff on LinkedIn for quite a while and the Open Leadership website. And that's what we want to talk to you about today, open leadership and invitation versus imposition and whatever else comes up related to those things. So could you start by telling us a little bit about your background and experience? Sure. I'm a guy with a computer science degree, minored in business, used that through my whole career as a developer in the beginning and then a teacher and then later on a businessman with IT staffing firm that spanned three states, had three offices here and then in the Northeast. In 2006, I headed into the agile space and never looked back. So since then I've written a few books on organizational change. Before that, I have some software patents and some minor achievements in software. And I'm fascinated with sociology, which is actually good if you're in the agile space. So that's a little bit about me. All right. And your, your major interest these days, I think is, um, open leadership. Am I correct? It is specifically what motivates people and how to get great results in a group, especially at scale. That's something I'm fascinated by. What is open leadership then? Open leadership is the application of an invitational approach to enlisting and engaging people and organizational change and work in general. Invitations are mixed in with the standard fare of delegations and uh, especially where the work is complex or near the edge of chaos, the invitational approach generates superior results by generating more feedback. And I've developed a set of methods around that, that, that help leaders to navigate what could be difficult terrain in a complex, chaotic type scenario. So why should we care? What, what is the, what is the problem out there? What is the type of leadership out there that you see? commonly. Yeah. So we're going through a period of unprecedented change at the level of civilization and society. It's hitting businesses first, and therefore it's hitting the leaders in those businesses first who have to cope with this stuff as their customers uh, are completely transforming from one thing to another before their very eyes. So that's the wider context of where invitational leadership comes in. The more narrow context is in the software space and then, of course, the increasing complexity of business itself. The invitational approach is an agile approach. It generates tremendous amounts of feedback in a way that delegations cannot. And as such, the invitational approach is a superior approach when things are getting really messy and complicated and moving very quickly and changing very quickly. So it's an empirical approach to leadership itself. And when things are changing quickly, it's actually superior to other leadership forms. Okay. But in contrast to what, what is the type of leadership that we're seeing in most organizations these days? Well, what you're seeing is leadership that doesn't really care much about feedback. It's doing delegations and doing them poorly. Normally delegations at a minimum involve a transfer of responsibility 
but that's actually poorly formed delegation. Delegation should also include bundled with the responsibility, the requisite authority to actually execute on the task. So right off the bat, delegation worldwide is deficient in many ways. By just tightening up delegation, we could do better, but we could do tremendously better by bringing the invitational approach in and mixing it in so that we're mixing in some invitations with those delegations. Now more than ever, people can pivot, they can leave your company, and they're going to leave if they can't answer the question why they care. So the invitational approach actually asks people right up front, do you care about this? If you do, here's a role you can play. Do you want to join? Here's the constraints. Here's a goal and outcomes we're trying to reach. Here's how you can track your feedback and, and progress and know exactly where you're going and how you're doing. And the next move is up to you. That's the invited approach. Yeah. If an organization was a state, like if it was a feudal system or a Stalinist Beautiful. system or an American style democracy, what would most organizations be? <laughs> <laughs> if organizations were states, what would their model be? That's a really funny question. They would be tyrannical dictatorships that were highly hierarchical in terms of their authority distribution. That's the type they would be, most organizations. But this raises an interesting point though, right? Most leaders in executive roles, they're actually human beings, just like the people who are often required to follow them at risk of uh, losing their jobs. And they don't know, the executives don't fully understand the power of the invited agent-based opt-in approach and how powerful it is. So we have a website, openleadershipnetwork.com. You can go there and the second menu item is executive testimonials. And you can go listen to reformed tyrants who got, they got it. And, and just were shocked by how simple it was and how effective it was. In particular, there's a fellow, Eddie Wilkinson from Bendix Corporation in the USA, who was completely shocked when he started up compelling people to help. He got these passionate, responsible people to help out. In a 700-person organization, he got almost 90 people to help him and his leadership team resolve problems, impediments, and issues that were blocking the, the company's success. And he came kicking and screaming to that. And now he's a total believer in the thing. And if you listen to the video, it's a very convincing video. So executives don't know, they haven't been educated. And I want to come back to this later because I think it's a crime. So if, if we look at organizations being states and we have tyrannical states, it's worse than that, right though, because we have tyrannical states that have massive PR teams that tell everybody it's all lovely and we're all happy clappy. I mean, the amount of agile washing that we see in these large corporates where nothing's really changed, there's still a dictator at the top, but there's a whole lot of agile transformation, a whole lot of agile washing happening in those organizations. Is that what you're seeing? Of course. Yeah. So for example, I was in a foreign country that will not be named where there was a uh, U.S. corporation that will not be named, who had a division there, you know, mostly developers. And people who signed up to go work there had to sign an agreement that said that they would not disparage anything about the agile situation because the company was considered an agile poster child of success. 
I actually heard that story from someone in the country that will not be named. So yeah, there's a lot of whitewashing going on. And also like online, a lot of people who might agree with anything you have to say that's incendiary and, and calls it out for what it is, you won't even get a like out of people that are afraid for their jobs, let alone a comment, because they're obviously afraid for their jobs. So they're not going to comment in, on social media because they know the risk of that. So for every comment you get online that says, oh yeah, that kind of nonsense is going on in my company, there's probably a hundred others who want to say the same thing and they're afraid. So why are organizations totalitarian dictatorships internally? I definitely have my theories. What has led us to this place? Here's what I believe it is. Convenience. Convenience of management. This is what has taken us to where we are. So when your company's making obscene profits and it's growing rapidly, your number one issue is how can I conveniently manage and lead this organization? And of course the answer is I'll create a hierarchical distribution of authority and I'll have a reporting structure and everything's going to be just great. But we know from military experience that that's not how it actually works. That if the chain of command is rigidly enforced during war, you get to lose the war. And people have to have enough agency at the edge to act according to commander's intent. So the whole thing about commander's intent is extremely important. In my book, the 2012 book, The Culture Game, and there's a chapter called Announce Your Intent. This is probably the most powerful thing leaders can do is to name what they intend. This allows the others to align and help. So this is where we are today. Management convenience. Now, if you want to align activity, energy, and effort in the direction of improved flow of value, well, that isn't the most convenient thing for managing or leadership. If you're going to optimize on the flow of value instead of management convenience, it means by definition that management becomes a little more difficult. Leadership becomes a little more difficult. And those are two separate things where generally leadership becomes more difficult. But what you get in, in return is tremendous economies of scale, tremendous efficiency, and tremendous throughput. But actually, the largest companies, here's the problem with them, they're obscenely profitable. And they can just waste so much money on management convenience. The management tax, you ever heard of this term, the management tax? It's a 30% tax on business. Every fourth person is a manager. Huh. Yeah, it's a lot. So I, I want to go back to managers as individuals because you were talking there as if managers are all the same and they're all aligned with the company and they're all basically got the same objectives, but it seems to me that managers are very different and they are within a society, which is their organization. And they are by and large ambitious people who are competing for power and influence and status, sometimes for good reason and sometimes for selfish reasons. So you get managers who are, you know, the, the. Barack Obama's of the world, and you get managers who are the Donald Trump's of the world. They're all competing within a very hierarchical system. 
to increase their power and then they are using patterns to achieve things and those patterns i think are learnt during childhood from their parents so we know that there are people who who are brought up in dysfunctional families and i'd suggest that those people are going to be implementing the patterns that their parents showed them when they're leaders because that's their model that's fair i recently completed a book by a fellow named christopher bohm b-o-e-h-m who wrote a book hierarchy in the forest the evolution of egalitarian behavior, where he talks extensively about these issues that you're raising. So uh, human beings just compete for status and position because we're pack animals. That's why dogs appreciate us and why we appreciate them. So we're looking you know, identify authority all the time. And you're actually raising like a super deep issue, which is that this authority information stuff that goes on inside a social system, like a family or a company is what holds it all together. It's the glue or the sinew or the binding agent. There's a guy named Jamshid Garajadagi, who was an accolade of Russell Ackoff. He wrote a book called systems thinking now in its fourth edition, people can go find that book. And he, he talked about how social systems are information bonded. I would go one step further and say that the character and nature of the information is authority information. And this is the essential information. So for example, here's the tell when you get invited into a company, when they introduce me to Murray, they go, this is Murray. Oh, he reports to Shane, Shane runs product. Why do they give me that information? Why does it, as soon as they say your name, they tell me what your authority is, where you get it from. Why? So I can figure out where I am so I can relate. That's why. So this whole thing has been completely under studied and underrepresented in academia. So for example, in, in, in the academia, everywhere you look, there's leadership studies, but you don't see any universities offering authority studies, which is a far deeper and fundamental code study that bundles leadership with it by definition. If you understand authority, you understand power and leadership. The reverse isn't necessarily true. Yeah, there hasn't been much written about the sociology of organizations internally, but not that I'm aware of. I've read a couple of things. That's right. I was careful to note in Bohm's book how many times he, he mentioned authority. It's a fascinating book. I think you in particular would find it quite fascinating, uh, given the questions that you're asking around this stuff. I, I would say, though, Daniel, that we need to be compassionate to, to leaders. I'm sure you would agree with that because leadership is really hard. Very hard. And I don't think many people know how to be good leaders. They were never trained. They didn't have good models. Some people do. Some people are lucky. They had great models growing up and they just kind of naturally become good leaders. But I think that's quite rare and I think leadership is something that we can all learn and organizations are pretty bad at, at teaching how to be a good leader. They're, they're better at teaching you how to be a bad leader. But they don't even teach, do they? They don't teach. I mean, you, you get promoted to your highest level of incompetence. You're the most senior developer. You're really good at being a senior developer. You're showing some leadership with your team. 
because you're showing the junior developers what good looks like and helping them when they get stuck. And then all of a sudden you become a manager. You get given a whole lot of other tasks that you've never been trained for. And you're never given any educational support in that. The other thing is, if we think about schools, they're based on chicken farming. They're not based on leadership and it's changing. Well, at least over in, in my part of the world, it's changing slow. But the schools that help kids become leaders and self-organize and discover and explore. In my school days, they were seen as weird hippie schools. Montessori, oh, weird hippie school, didn't follow the process. So I think it, it's a generational thing. We're taught to behave a certain way and we get promoted after a certain number of years to management positions. And so we behave the way we've been taught. My question is, what are we doing to change that? What are we doing to help educate people and encourage them to lead? So yeah, when we coach an agile team, we spend lots of time coaching and mentoring and educating, but do we ever do that for the leaders of those teams? Not often that I've seen. Yes. So leadership at scale encourages narcissism in sociopathic tendencies. And there's a reason for this, and it has to do with the nature of people. So people themselves seek leadership constantly. This is my hypothesis coming out of something called the group relations community. And if your audience Google's group relations conference, they can learn about this group relations community. The group relations community basically says humans seek leadership. Humans routinely submit to perceived authority and that this is what's going on around the world all the time. So you can see how this would automatically tend to encourage a narcissist persona. Even if you didn't go in as a narcissist or a sociopath, the people kind of teach you to be one because they're seeking strong leadership, which is highly authoritative. That's the theory. So. You know, if you think your audience wants to know more about the, the very deep topic, by the way, group relations conference, group relations community, Tavistock, go take a look there. I think you'd be shocked by what you find there. If this stuff's resonating with anyone who's listening, go to a group relations conference, even online and have your eyes opened. I've been to a couple of them and they've been extremely useful for helping me understand how things actually work. The other thing I have to say about this is that the agile leadership education in the agile community is monumentally deficient in what it's teaching. So for example, if you go to anyone, any group that teaches agile leadership, go look at the learning objectives, you will find nothing about the folly and foolishness and harm that comes from imposing practices on people without their consent. The most powerful force in the world is human passion. You're not going to get that by forcing things on people. They need to be choosing. And there's a range to this and it's a nuanced conversation. It's not all or nothing, but the reality is that human agency is what powers everything in the social world. You know, Harrison Owens says all systems are open. All systems are self-organizing. I think he's quite right about both of those points. Daniel. As a manager, can you really control anybody? And if you try, what happens? Well, for fun, just try controlling yourself and see how that works out. And then after that, try to control other people. 
So the whole idea that there's any control at all is an illusion. If you basically adopt fundamental open space principles, you, you become a follower of trend instead of a person trying to create a trend. So you're trying to get aligned with the energy that's already active and get in sync with that. The idea that you can control anything at all is probably seriously misguided. Everyone has a strong need for control. So for example, the three of us, we're all moderately successful in our work and in life and in the world. That's because we have in part sufficient ego strength to be able to withstand the various pressures. So everyone has a strong need for control. The most successful people have a stronger need for control. We refer to people as control freaks. Actually, it's the most normal thing in the world. In fact, having a sense of perceived control is associated with well-being and good psychological health. Also, and this is also a big part of inviting and gaming, not just perceived control, but also perceived belonging and perceived progress. These are also very important elements of well-being. So it turns out that inviting delivers on all three of those, a sense of control, a sense of belonging, and a sense of progress. All three are generated through the invitational approach. And that's because invitations are structured in four dimensions. First, there has to be a clear goal. What's in it for the person? If I invite you to dinner at my house, you know, what's in it for you? I need to tell you that. So there's an attractor. Second thing is, what are the rules? The rules are the constraints, the boundaries, the guardrails. You show up at my house at a certain time, leave at a certain time. You can invite a friend if you want. All of those things are constraints and rules. And then everyone who comes to the dinner has membership in agreeing to those rules. So here we can see how the invitation generates a sense of belonging and membership. Thirdly, the idea of progress tracking and feedback, so I can see how I'm doing. When the dinner, uh, we're going to have five courses of food and we're going to sample six different kinds of wine. And there's going to be good food, fine wine, and great conversation. And that's what's in it for you. Through that enumeration, I'm explaining how you'll track progress through the experience. That's also very important. So progress, belonging, and control are essential to well-being and invitations deliver. Hmm. I want to ask you to go back to what you said before about leadership in the agile movement. I've seen you calling on Scrum and Safe to talk about invitation versus imposition. That's right. So yeah, that I have yeah. done. Why? Yeah. Why? Because. Because here's the deal. If you can see maybe something other people can't see, then, and you try to like clear the fog so people can see it, initially you're going to be misunderstood. And that's okay because you're doing it in service to something and people don't understand what you're doing. So I've been really beating up the Agile community about their willingness to just accept imposition and the forcing of agile practices on people in the largest companies, especially, and just accepting that is normal. There's nothing normal about that in an agile sense. The whole agile thing is focused on people. Build your projects around motivated individuals. Are motivated individuals people who are afraid that they're going to lose their job? 
people and interactions in the values. Oh, we're just going to toss that out the window in the name of making a buck now? Is that what we're doing? So yeah, I'm kind of a jerk about it, but it's been in service to something. And I've been misunderstood along the way, and that's okay with me because it all comes out good in the end. Now, I've had a couple of experiences with this kind of open leadership before I started reading your things. One was with the open space movement, the unconference movement. Yes. I went to a couple of those, which I really enjoyed. And it's, they create a space, but they don't have an agenda, except that there's a number of rules. I, I'm trying to remember what they were. You agree to be there. You agree to make a positive contribution. You can walk away anytime you want. They go through the rules while everyone sits in a circle. And they ask people to come into the middle and comment if they want. And then they ask people to volunteer to run a topic. So the ones I've been to, they had slots and you just put your topic up there. People could come and ask you about it. And then people voted on it basically. And then yeah. the top ones were the ones that were available and people went to them. So it was completely self-organized and uh, I actually enjoyed those conferences a lot. Is, is that a type of open leadership? It's a practice that will uh, support the open uh, leadership style. So at the top you have principles, right? And the principles are that people do what they're willing to do. They generally don't do what they're unwilling to do unless they're coerced or compelled and, and when they do coerced or compelled things, they, it tends to build resentment. Uh, that's bad for everything. So these basic ideas are part of the inviting leadership, invitational leadership approach, open leadership. Open space is a tool for expressing that style. So it brings it down to, uh, actual implementation application. That's what open space is good for, but in the wider scheme of things, you can create an open space anywhere at any time. You don't need open space technology to do that. Open space technology is just a scaffolding that creates the conditions where people can experience it in a semi-formal way. But the reality is that any leader can generate an open atmosphere at any time. So for example, if you go to the open leadership network web, and click executive testimonials and go look at the Eddie Wilkinson video. That fellow implemented Scrum at scale. He never did an open space meeting, but what he did do was he opened up the executive action team event to observers. Anyone who wanted to observe could come in and see what was being said and done in the executive action team, which is a place where really hard conversations are taking place about impediments and things that are holding the company back. And it's the last stop for impediment removal where the highest authorized people are located who can actually make policy changes. And he invited observers. And then when an issue came up, he would say, uh, is there anyone here who might be willing to champion this issue? They had a hard time getting certain decisions to be made, provisioning of hardware and software. It's like, anyone want to work on this to speed it up? You'd find volunteers who were passionate and responsible. He was running in open space in the executive action team meeting. It just wasn't called that. People didn't have to go to the meeting if they didn't want to. When they went to it, they learned things. And when they learned things, they got excited and passionate. And when they were at, issued an invitation, they jumped in. And it's a tremendous story that he's telling. And that can happen anytime, anywhere. So 
In summary, open space provides a structured meeting design that will help the leaders who are new to this to, to discover how powerful it is. But you can do this anywhere at any time. You don't need open space technology for that. So if we take that pattern, organizations that want to change the way they work, they should apply those patterns to the nefarious meetings. We've all worked for organizations that are tyrannical. You know, there is a meeting, you're invited, you're too scared not to go because, you know, you'll be noticed that you weren't there. You know, it's a waste of time. So in this modern Zoom world, you try and keep your camera off so you can go watch cat videos on the other screen. But really what we should be doing is saying, there's a meeting. If these value, people will turn up like an open space conversation. If nobody turns up, then that meeting had no value and you've got a problem to solve because it was your meeting and you need an outcome, but go get some people passionate about the problem you think should be solved and they'll then come and solve it for you. So that's what we should be doing, right? Using those patterns every day to remove some of the hierarchical, tyrannical behavior that we see in, in these large organizations. I agree completely. First thing you need is a great attractor. What's in it for me? Why is it relevant for me to go? Why do I give a shit about this meeting? That's number one. Number two, when you invite me, you need to name the constraints I'm subject to. That's the boundary. So the attractor gets me in and then the boundary says, okay, here's the perimeter. So now I'm in a container. And a good leader will design the container so it has enough room for autonomy, but it keeps people away from getting off the rails. So you build those guardrails in, there's an art to that. And, uh, you know, earlier before pre-podcast, we talked about the subtlety of, of this inviting leadership stuff. One of the things about the inviting leadership style is it requires more rigor in the design of say a meeting than mere delegation. Mere delegation is sort of lazy. You don't have to engage in design with delegation. You just tell them what they have to do and that's it. In return, you get no feedback. And you, you might uh, actually dampen any passion the person had. And you might also attract people who aren't really uh, top talent either. But when you invite, you can retain and attract top talent because top talent's opting in or opting out. And this is the name of the game. In my book, the 2012 book, The Culture Game, I refer to it as games. I believe all meetings are games. That means that this meeting is a game. It has goals, it has rules, it has a way to track progress, and it has opt-in participation. Nobody put a gun to my head to come on the podcast. And you were quite clear about what the goals were and what the constraints were, and, and I agreed to those. You see how that works? So this is going on all over the world all the time. If you create a well-formed invitation, you'll get an unambiguous yes or no. And then you comment about What's actually the root of the problem? The root of the problem is these large organizations are really profitable. They can afford to pay the 30% management tax. So they have no driver to change. That's right. They, they don't care. If change doesn't happen, everybody gets paid. So we need to wait for the next global financial crisis and then liberating structures and self-organizing teams will become mandatory. Otherwise you become Kodak, you become Blockbuster. So it's just a waiting game. I agree completely. These companies are obscenely profitable. You know, I don't know if you've heard of Jim McCarthy, but he led the C++ team at Microsoft many years ago. The one that destroyed Borland 
And he met his current wife there, and they were both fascinated with team dynamics and sociology teams and all this kind of stuff. And what Jim says is, the ideal time to ask for help is when you're doing well. Isn't that interesting? If you're asking for help when you're not doing well, it's already too late. So you have to be passionate about improving. This is the name of the game. And the ideal time to improve is when you're already doing well. So the best companies are doing this today and they are going to consume and or destroy competitors in this space. And it, it will be so simple for them. They don't have to do anything at all except what they're already doing. Yeah. So in the contest of societies in the world, we've seen that liberal democratic states have won out over fascist and totalitarian states because they've been able to be more effective with the way they work. They're much better at allocating resources. They have free markets where people make local decisions. Right. They co-opt people. They're not perfect by any means, not at all, but they suck less <laughs> than the others. And as a result, you can see the GDP growth of liberal democratic societies has been far superior than the GDP growth of Stalinist and totalitarian societies. It's super obvious. And yet we don't seem to have taken that lesson when we are looking at the way organizations are, are run. I mean, a lot of organizations seem to be run like African dictatorships. Quite often. Yeah, absolutely. I think we need to look outside and, and see that we can apply these principles that we are all very happy to use in, in day-to-day -day life. All right. So you, you really want to go down this road of just macro state level stuff. So let's talk about this for a Okay. I have a hypothesis. Here's how it works. All meetings are games, right? Goals, rules, progress, tracking, opt-in participation. Every good meeting, you don't have to go to it unless you want to. Okay. So there's roles, rules, artifacts, and events in any given meeting, which describes its design. And any good meeting also has goals, rules, feedback tracking, and opt-in participation. Okay, so that's a basic structure of something really, really healthy. If we look at Scrum, we'll see there's meetings that are nested inside a Scrum, like the daily Scrum is part of the wider Scrum thing. And there's a sprint review, you know, there's a sprint planning and so forth, and the sprint itself. So Scrum's a game of games, as it were. And of course, on the cover of the Scrum Guide, it says the definitive rules of the game, which seems to imply that we're onto something here about the gaming. So hey, look, Scrum is of the same class of systems as the U.S. Constitution. The U.S. Constitution or any constitution is a designed game to organize people at scale in pursuit of a goal or goals. They are first order nonlinear feedback system designs. Meeting design is part of this. Scrum is a social system schema that is designed. The U.S. Constitution is that same thing at scale, designed to organize millions of people instead of just nine. But how interesting it is that Scrum has three roles and so does the U.S. Constitution. The triad is an inherently unstable structure. So think about this. You've talked about family and all this kind of stuff before. Let's, let's go back to that and double click on that. The first experience you have of authority is in your own family. 
and you actually participate in a triad consisting of, you know, for most people, a mother, a father, and yourself. And the child tries to divide the parents. And if they're really crafty, they can be successful. But if the parents are really crafty, the child fails miserably every time. So two can gang up on the one in the triad. And this is why the U.S. Constitution is set up this way. As soon as one aspect of the system gains too much power, the other two will assert. And this is what's going on inside Scrum as well. So while we're talking about states and talking about families, I thought I'd just kind of throw that out there and see how, see how your listeners might enjoy that, those ideas. I only raise this macro comparison just to open people's eyes to, to what the alternatives are. But I wanted to talk to you about servant leadership because we've been talking about servant leadership quite a lot. And people have pointed out to me recently that you probably need more than servant leadership. But I was wondering, how does that fit with this open leadership model? Service to others is what leadership is ultimately all about. Napoleon knew this in his bones. That's why people followed him passionately because they loved him so much. Because he was serving his followers and they knew that. And he knew that they knew that. It was common knowledge in his armies that he loved them. So if you don't bring love to leadership, if you don't bring service to leadership, and that's what love is, it's service, then you have no shot at legitimate leadership at all. You're just going through the motions. Well, this is an ancient principle. It dates back to Christian scripture. The one who would be first among you, let him serve. And it, it goes back even deeper in, into antiquity. So servant leadership is not a new idea. Greenleaf didn't invent anything new. All he did was re-articulate what was already true. The book Hierarchy in the Forest by Christopher Baum, he pointed out that hunter-gatherer societies had two core, absolutely required aspects of a person to be even be considered remotely for leadership. Number one, generosity. Generosity being liberal in spreading what you have around, helping other people, serving basically through generosity. Second thing, self-control, slow to anger, even temper. Those are the two minimum requirements of leadership in hunter-gatherer societies, according to Christopher Bohm. We're up and out of hunter-gatherer societies, so that resonates with us. If someone's generous in the gifts they have, in service to the group, we tend to anoint them as leaders. And if they're steady and they can control themselves, like we talked about before, like I said, try to control yourself, see how easy it is. It's considered a leadership trait to have self-control. While I'm talking about this, I really want people to go and Google Designing the Future by Jay Forrester. Jay Forrester was a, a professor at MIT at Sloan School of Management. He invented system dynamics, which is the root of systems thinking. He's a giant of a man, Jay Forrester. He's right up there with Russell Ackoff and the others. He did many innovative things. And in that essay, Designing the Future, he talks about social system design. So those who are still listening are probably fascinated with social system design or they wouldn't be still listening now. Go, go look for that. You'll, you'll really enjoy it. It's really something. 
let's get a, a little more practical then. Let's say I am a leader in an organization and I want to introduce Agile because I think it's good or it's going to solve our problems. How would I do it if I was taking an open leadership approach? I'd start with a pilot. If I had 40 or 50 teams in the organization, I'd look for four to six teams to opt into the pilot. I'd name the rules and constraints, what's in it for them, what the goal is, what they're committing to, what they're going to be bound by and constrained by if they agree to do this. So for example, if it's a three month pilot, you can't opt out. You've got to go all the way three months. I'd name how they're going to track their progress. I'd engage them in creating the actual progress measures. In other words, the metrics themselves, I would give to the teams to select and help design. And then I'd turn them loose on agile practices. And if you commit to the pilot, what you're really committing to is an experience of being coached an experience of being trained and an experience of suspending your disbelief long enough to see if these practices can actually work. So that's a set of constraints. And the goal would be something like uh, you participate in this pilot, your work with the others will influence the entire company over the next two years. Let's start with that. Make sure I set up a guiding coalition, make sure there's no blockers in the higher authority space, the decision makers make sure at least they commit to not block, if not support. And once that pilot gets underway, once they get traction and you do the second wave, more teams, pretty soon there's a buzz, there's energy, people are excited and the whole company is swept along by improvement. That's how I do it. That's if I was a leader in the real world right here, right now, that's how I do it. I've seen you talk about a big room planning open event now i've seen you say you can change an organization in three days by changing decision rules yeah do we need these big room planning and how can you change an organization in three days by changing decision rules so martin weisbord wrote a book called productive workplaces where he coined the phrase get the whole system in the room if you want to tap the collective intelligence of the whole company you need to get the whole system in the room and you would not even want to do that unless you were in the, you know, highly complex borderline chaotic space where no one person actually has the answer and you want to tap the collective intelligence. The way to do that is whole group process. So that's the first thing. Second thing about decisions, let me modify the term decision rights and call it authorized decision rights. And if we tie back earlier to the idea that authority information is what holds a social group together, a really, really important part of that authority information is who's authorized to participate in decisions that affect the whole group. So decision rights turn out to be critical to culture change because the authority information is so important and specifically the authorized decision right information is so important. If you bring in something like scrum and you implement the artifacts, the events, the roles on the surface, it all looks like scrum, but it's not scrum until you implement the scrum decision rights by role. When you do that, it changes your culture because people who made decisions yesterday don't make them today. Other people do. What's the first thing that happens when you do that? The boundaries are tested by the incumbents. 
I used to make decisions about the how with respect to this team. Now the team decides how. I don't like that anymore. Many reasons why, but the primary reason is when people are forced out of a company, the first thing that happens is the decision rights and their overall authority is reduced. So is it fair for me to be triggered if my decision rights are uh, reduced? Absolutely. So I'm going to block. I'm going to test the boundary right away. If Murray's the CEO and I'm the boundary pusher and Shane's the scrum master and Shane goes, you can't do that. And I go, yes, I can. Shane goes, no, you can't. I go, yes, I can. And watch me. I'm doing it right now. And then Shane goes to Murray, the CEO, and says, you know, Dan's causing trouble at the boundary of the new order of things. And I get called into Murray's office and I get a talking to. And I'm told not to do that anymore. Culturally, that's going to change because the next thing I do is I go to lunch and what do I do? People ask me how I'm doing. What do I tell them? I'm kind of sucking right now because I got dressed on by Murray in his office. I got called into his office and he told me what I wouldn't be doing anymore around the scrum team. And I'm pissed. See how that's going to change culture? Because the story gets around that the boundary's real. So when I say that you can change culture in three days, I'm kind of being flippant, but I'm kind of not. Yeah. I've certainly seen that sort of thing, people testing boundaries. And if the boundary changes like that, the rules change. If the CEO backs it, then suddenly people learn it spreads very fast. The same if the CEO loses confidence in somebody for whatever reason, they start to remove their decision rights. People are very sensitive to that and they gossip about it. And they say, did you see that so-and-so wasn't invited to that meeting? And because they want to know who has the right to tell them what to do and who's important and who's not, because they'll naturally try and follow the important people so they can get rewards. Exactly. So imagine a world where there's an executive action team that's capable of changing policy and scrum masters can appeal their impediments to the executive action team. They write a one pager a week ahead of time, and then they show up and the executives ask them a few questions and anybody who wants to can go and observe that. And then the executives, when they hear the impediment, they ask the observers, Hey, would anyone like to help remove this impediment? And you can imagine how that would change culture. How many of the C, D, E and E players would be kind of uncomfortable, but all of a sudden the A, B and C players, especially the A players would be super psyched because, oh, okay, we're actually on a path of improvement here and merit does count for something all of a sudden. I think I'm going to call that recruiter and tell them to just put my resume on hold for a few months as I watch a little bit more closely about what's going on here and participate a little bit more actively and see kind of like what happens. So this whole idea of open leadership, the inviting style, it's super attractive to top talent who realize that they can have a huge amount of influence over what's happening. So one of the things that happens when you have crappy agile, top talent leaves, where do they go? They go to the more progressive companies in the same industry. That's where they go. So in some sense, it's all good because scarce human capital is being allocated in the most efficient way possible. I bet you the executive action meeting is one of the most attended meetings. Everybody wants to go because it has high value. And I'm wondering now, actually, if you looked at a retention of top talent and organizations that adopted safe, whether you'd see a mass leaving or you wouldn't because 
I don't see that as a liberating or an empowering uh, structure. Yes, they do bigger in planning, but not for the right reasons. The one definition of top talent is people that can rapidly move from one job to another. People with options, in other words. And if people with options exercise, hey, guess what? Everyone else gets that sinking feeling. Shane's leaving. He's leaving in a month. Have you heard? Oh, wait a minute. What does that mean? Because everyone knows that Shane was tops, right? So this is what's happening. So this goes back to the, the principle that uh, all systems are open. All systems are self-organizing. Maybe what's going on with all the crappy agile, it's, it's just part of talent allocation. It's actually good in the end. <laughs> right. The most progressive companies are rewarded. The most unprogressive are punished. Yeah. Maybe that's right. That the, the crappy, horrible companies will all die off. Yeah. These ones are interesting for me because this leadership series, I suppose I've got in my head now is an area that I'm not an expert. At. So, so my patience is from today. Management is a marriage of convenience. The management take the easy path and then follow that up with the term I'm going to use lots, management tax, 30%. Look at the organization and the one in four of every people is an overhead that adds no value. That's a really interesting way of, of telling what type of organization you're going to be working with. I then bounced off into Bob reports to Jane, first conversation, explain the hierarchy of the organization so you know who's but to kiss. And then I flipped that to scrum where we take the role and we call it developer. We remove any hierarchy. We remove any level of expertise, any specialization so that the team work together and organize themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I need to say one more thing very briefly. Self-organization or self-management is actually the management of decisions that affect the whole team. So a self-managed team is managing decisions that affect itself. Yep. And I think that that's a pretty important topic. Okay. And then I flipped into leadership patterns for highly complex systems where we're trying to scale. So there's a team of five of you, maybe you don't need some of these patterns as much as you need if you've got 5,000. And then from there, I flipped over to, it's all about perceived control, perceived belonging and perceived progress. That's what people want. And so we put patterns in place to help them achieve that. So one in pattern, announce your intent, set the goal, right? And then they'll either opt in or opt out of that goal. Then I flip from there over to, do you care? We see that with the new generation, this intent that actually just turning up isn't enough. They have to be emotionally invested in what the organization's about. They care about the outcome of the work they're doing as much as the work. And from there, we need to think about Implement this change when you don't have to. So don't wait till you're in trouble. Don't wait till you've already scaled. Do it when you have the ability and the bandwidth and the permission to make change because you're all doing well, you can take the risk. And to be successful, all you got to do is suck less than the other ones because you're going to survive and, and the most suckiest won't. And then I kind of closed it out in my head with it all a game, but actually games have a set of patterns. There is a goal of the game. There is a set of rules or guardrails for the game. There's a sense of progression in the game. And then finally, it's the most insightful for me. It's about decision rights. So it's helped solidify when I'm working with a team and we see change happen. I missed that actually one of the key drivers of that is that we've removed decision rights from a bunch of people that were in control. 
Now, the, the team may have been given those decision rights. They may have adopted them. They may not. But we're actually blocking decision rights for some people. And I'd miss that. For me, it was subtle, but now it's like a, a hammer to the head. They're triggered by that. It means that they're, they might be edged out soon. So they have every reason to be concerned. Yeah, but for the team, they've seen those decision rights change. So they're empowered to be more bold, to make more decisions because they've seen the organizational balance, the, the power structure change, right? And that's part of the thing that causes the ripple effect when we get agile teams working. So I can see the lever that causes the beginning of the change. Change is hard, but there are a, a natural lever there that I kind of missed uh, or couldn't articulate clearly. So that's me. Murray, what do you got? I think most of us are like fish swimming in the ocean where the ocean is the organization that we, we're in and the society that we're in, and we're not aware of the water. Right. So what I really like about the sociological approach you're taking, Daniel, and open leadership is you're making people aware of the water and the currents and what's going on so they can start to understand it and then make better decisions about it. I think we're just very accepting of working in totalitarian hierarchies and feudal systems where there's a lot of favoritism and unfairness. So we just try and do the best we can and leaders don't know any better often. And maybe they just have to do what the narcissistic and sociopathic CEO wants in, some, in their organization. Not that I'm saying all CEOs are like that. Of course not. There's just great CEOs as well, but there's also plenty of those people around. So. This is very, very interesting for me. I'm very interested in the techniques as well. I've, I've seen them work very well. I, I think you've been really clear about the patterns of how to organize a meeting better, for example, which I think will be quite helpful for people. And I know for me personally, I have been on a journey over my lifetime and my career from more controlling, which was the way I was raised to being much more open with people. And I found that as I've gone on that journey of being more generous and more open with people that my life has improved. I've been getting better results. People like me more and I feel like I can harness people's passion more. And also they can teach me a lot more. I don't need to know all the answers as a manager. I don't need to be in control. In fact, I can't be in control. It's impossible. The more I try to control people, the worse my relationships with everyone and the worse the outcomes are. So I really like the idea of management should be about letting go, being generous, helping people, listening to people and, and helping the people you're with to be the best they can be and the team to be the best it can be. I love that. So lots of reading for people, designing the future by Jay Forrester, Christopher Bohm, hierarchies in the forest. There's a group relations community. There's your open leadership network. Yeah. Openleadershipnetwork.com. And I think there's quite a lot of practical stuff there that people can learn. Isn't there, Daniel? Yeah. And if I can just add a couple of summary points. I would say gaming the work is the most important activity that you could engage in. Game is a loaded term, but I want you to apply design thinking to the game design 
So game design thinking is a primary task of leaders because they create the, the space where people operate in that needs to be designed. Second thing is passion and responsibility. I didn't mention this yet, but Harrison Owen is full of these little quips. He's got one about passion and responsibility. He says, without passion, nobody cares. And without responsibility, nothing gets done. So passion by itself isn't good enough. That room's a mess. Why don't you clean it up? That's passion without responsibility. And then responsibility without passion is just obligation. You told me I have to do it. I'm subject to your authority, so I do it. I don't really like it, but I do it. So responsibility alone is no good. Passion by itself is no good. But the two together are really awesome. Plus delegated authority, though, Daniel. What if you have responsibility with no resources or authority to carry out? That's just immensely frustrating. That is the default reality for workers all over the world. Everyone can relate to delegation of responsibility without authority. Isn't that interesting? When you mention it, people go, yeah, I've experienced that like 18,000 times. <laughs> so, yeah, we should do NFTs of decision rights. So, so whenever we're changing the organization, we have little digital certificates and I go, Daniel, here's your decision right certificate for uh, the responsibility you just inherited. Well, you, you okay, chose to yeah. take cause you've got, you know, I could go another two hours on this stuff. I'd love to talk about, uh, distributed autonomous organizations and the role of smart yeah. contracts in the future of civilization, because that's actually a big deal. It has a lot to do with gaming. It has a lot to do with imitation. It has a lot to do with decision rights. And it's at the forefront of what is happening in human civilization. So I'm very, very keen on, on, on talking more deeply with you on, on these topics. And is it okay if I fish for an invitation to be invited back? <laughs> you can. We've enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, me too. I've enjoyed talking to you guys. Excellent. Well, we'll catch you all later. All right. Thanks for that, Dan. Bye. That was the No Nonsense Agile podcast from Murray Robinson and Shane Gibson. If you'd like help with Agile, contact Murray at evolve.co. That's evolve with a zero. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.